Well, school has started back this, this week uh, for many of our, our students. It made me think a little bit of when I started into school. It was 1968. Uh, Lair, not Laramie, it was Alexander Fleming Elementary School, south side of Chicago, 63rd and Cicero. I was in first grade, so this was big school stuff. You know, I was just about kicked out of kindergarten, so I wasn't sure what to expect with first grade. I thought, okay, this is... Actually, I was kicked out once. That's another whole story. We don't need to go down that road. But, but, so I'm sitting in my, my classroom, although, let me back up a little bit. What we had, my school, is for first, second, and third grade, we weren't actually in the big building. We were in mobiles, they called it. It was like two trailer homes put together, hollowed out, and made into a classroom. So we were in there. The monitor got us all in and got us seated, and we were sitting down, and I was a little bit nervous, and in walked Mrs. Conroy. Now, Mrs. Conroy was probably her first or second year of teaching. She was very, very, very pretty. And she had this big smile. And when you went in to hand in your papers or, you know, to get yelled at or whatever else, she just smelled wonderful. And I fell in love with Mrs. I I gave Mrs. Conroy lots of opportunities to humiliate me. And she didn't take me up on on, on any of them. She was just a, a neat, neat lady. One time, I mean, she taught us the math and science and all those things. But she taught us more than that. You know, we had one kid in our class, and I may have shared this a while back. I can't remember. Uh, his name was Pedro. Now, Pedro uh, smelled bad. He dressed bad, all those kind of things. And actually, he was from a very, very, very poor, messed up family. Stupid kid that I was. I just made fun of, of Pedro. But we came in. We lined up outside our mobile at Chris, right after Christmas. As, as the, we came on in, on Pedro's desk was this big present. And we all kind of gathered around. I didn't have a, none of us had a present, but Pedro had a present. We gathered around. What do you got, Pedro? And he said, oh, I don't, I don't know. He started to open this thing. And it was 1968, right? Hot Wheels just came out. And he had this cool Hot Wheels set. I mean, it was really cool. And all the kids, oh, wow. And I, I just kind of stood back. Where did this come from? And I looked up front and there was Mrs. Conroy just kind of standing by her desk, smiling ear to ear. And I knew where this, no one else knew, but I knew where this came from. And that day, I, was, I didn't become a, a saint, as it were, the way I dealt with people. But that day, I mean, it was an eye-opening deal for me to see myself, to see Pedro, to understand what it meant to take care of, of poor, even in that little way. Well, that was a, a long time ago, right? In 68, year 2000, 30-plus years later. And Mrs. Conroy, still on, on my, my mind, of all my teachers I've ever had, she was the one that made the biggest imprint I decided I'm going to try to find her. So I called back up Alexander Fleming School, and I said, listen, I was a kid there in 68, and you had this teacher, Mrs. Conroy, is she still there? And the lady started laughing. Oh, you know, no, 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 I'd never heard of this person before. Hang on a second. When you hear her scream out over the office, anybody know a Mrs. Conroy used to teach here in in late 60s? And this one guy mumbles back, and so then she gets on the phone, and she says, yes, somebody here thinks that there was a Mrs. Conroy here, but now she's at the Chicago Board of Education. I said, wonderful. So I call the Chicago Board of Education, and the receptionist answers her phone, and I decide to just be positive and go for it, and I said, could you please connect me to Dorothy Conroy? She said, absolutely. And when she said, I, started going, I mean, I didn't plan my, I never thought I would actually come across her. I was, oh, 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 and all of a sudden she picks up and she says, this is Dorothy Conroy. And suddenly I'm back in the mobile 1968 because this was her. It was her. I know that voice anywhere. And I said, Mrs. Conroy, you're not going to remember me. 
but uh, I was one of your students back at Fleming in 68. And she said, well, what's your name? I said, Mark Harris. She said, oh, Mark, of course I remember you and Earl Abercrombie and David Sears and Joyce Kearns. She said, naming all my friends. And we laughed and talked. And I, and I, I pointed out that Pedro thing. I said, remember that Pedro deal? And I knew. And we laughed. And she laughed. Yes, it was me. And, and, and on and on. And finally, I said, you know, I just want to call, call you just because I wanted to say thank you because you made a huge impact on my life. And at the time, I, I didn't even know how big. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, you ever have a Mrs. Conroy type teacher? You look back. Has ever been one that you say, yeah, that was that type of person? Someone that doesn't teach to get a paycheck. They don't teach just to dump information on you just to see if you can repeat it back at the test time. They, they teach to your heart. You know what I mean? Not just your head. They really care. They know that they see stuff in you that maybe you couldn't see yourself. And they understand your shortcomings. In first grade, I had no clue what I didn't know, but she, she knew. And so she's going to teach to that and try to bring me along in the right way. That's the right teacher. That's a good teacher. Jesus was a master teacher. Now, we think about Jesus. We think, well, he came to die, right? That was the reason why. He obviously came to die. And, oh, his teaching stuff. Well, um, probably that was stuff that he just kind of said while he was waiting to die for us. You know, it's just kind of superfluous, extra stuff. And if that's the case, you know what? We can cut out a lot of the Gospels and save ourselves a lot of time. But if you, obviously his death was primary, but if you take that and you, you blow off all of his teaching, you get a very, very incomplete picture. The reason why he came was to, to, to teach us because he knew what we didn't know. And he understands and he understood how to live this life with fewer scars and fewer regrets and with deeper peace and with fuller relationships. He said, didn't he say, I have come that you might have life and abundantly. But so often our, our thinking is, is messed up. Maybe it's not intentional. It's either voices that have told us our own internal GPS system is messed up, whatever. And he's trying to teach us how to think properly, how to live life as we're supposed to. Now, when Jesus taught, there were several ways he taught. He had sermons, you know, although I don't think he used the scroll. He taught once in a while sermons. He taught through question and answer times. He taught through... Uh, Dialogue, argumentation, basically. But one of his favorite choices to teach was through parables. Parables, you know, he said about 40, over 40 of these parables. Now, a parable is a short story. Sometimes it's only one verse. Sometimes a whole chapter. And these are fictitious stories. He's making them up. But they have a very significant cosmic universal principle that if... You can get it. If I can get it, and we can apply it, you know what? It will transform our lives. Jesus didn't waste any space. He didn't waste any words. He didn't just say stuff that, eh, maybe it's important, maybe it's not. Incredibly significant for you and I in these parables. Now, some characteristics about parables. As we, we get into this series on the parables, we're not going to go over all 40. I know some of you guys are thinking, 40 parables. We're not going to go over all those. Um, we're just going to go over a handful, some of them very popular, some you've never heard of before probably. Um, but there are some characteristics within all of them. And his characteristics, one, one is he has some main characters. Usually people, once in a while an inanimate thing, but usually people. And one, two, or three at the most, key, key folk. Now this is what you need to know as you look at a parable. 
Each of these key people always represent somebody. They all, they're not just superfluous. They always represent something significant, maybe an error that he's trying to correct or something that he's trying to put his stamp on. So whenever you look at a parable, you look at the people and you say, I, the main ones, I wonder who they represent. The second thing you need to know about parables is that they um, have the purpose given, obviously, is that our lives may change. There's a reason why he's given them. Third thing you need to know about parables is there is one big idea. And this is where we can really get messed up on parables. Because since they're fictitious stories, they're embellished, they're added, different details are added. And sometimes we start looking at the details and we get concoct this wild interpretation, come up with this real goofy thing. We got to let that go and say there's really only one big idea. Let me figure out what that is. That is the universal truth that he's trying to, to get us to. Also, in most of his parables, there's like a sting in the tail, they call it. It's, it's, it's like, oh, Henry-esque. It's a surprise ending. You didn't see that coming. And he's got that normal, normal in his parables. Now, today, we're going to start with... Uh, parables aren't in the Bible in any, any specific chronological order. They're all standalones, basically. But we're going to start with Jesus' most controversial parable. Also, his most unique parable... And that's in Luke 16. So if you've got your Bibles, will you turn with me to Luke 16? I hope you bring your Bibles for this series because you're going to want to see this in your, own, uh, in your own text. Make sure I'm not trying to pull something over on you. Now, with, with this parable, this parable is going to start in verse 19. You need to know, though, that for the longest time, I got this parable wrong. I thought that it was teaching something different than what he's teaching. I thought he was going in a different direction. If you want to understand this parable, start in verse 19, you kind of need to look at the whole context. So just briefly looking at the whole context. I would, once in a while, uh, I, will, I will read through the Bible every year. Often when I read through, I'll have my colored pencils and I'll be marking something. And several years ago, I went through and I did everything Scripture has to say about money or possessions. I, would, I was underlining in green. Well, if you looked at my text, Luke 16, like the whole thing is green everywhere. It's green. Uh, The context, obviously, is money. It's materialism. It's wealth. And in the the first section of, first part, first few verses of Luke 16, he gives another story, a parable. We're not going to look at this one. But he gives us a parable about wealth. And then he follows up with this in verse 13 of chapter 16. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. Now, whenever you you want to understand the parables, you have to understand the audience. So who's he talking to? Well, 16.1, it says he's talking to his disciples. But then some people are eavesdropping. Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That last sentence, man, we could, if you could focus on that, there's a lot there. What's exalted in man's eyes is an abomination before God. Wow, what a deal. He's talking about their, their view of, of wealth and how they're, 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 they're shooting him down. Now, let me ask you. Are you a lover of money? 
Now, I know probably no one's going to say, yes, I am. Even if you thought you were, you'd say, no, I'm not. But most of us don't think we're a lover of money. We are good stewards, right? And this is what makes it a challenge because we're supposed to be good stewards. We're supposed to be wise with our finances. We're supposed to be wise. But where is the line between wisdom and being a tightwad, you know? Or the line between being generous and being irresponsible. Sometimes that is hard. It's really hard to find attention and it's difficult to navigate sometimes. Am I being wise here or am I just being selfish? Am I being generous here or am I just not thinking about the needs of of my family? What does it come down to? The answer to that is, is really, are you a lover of money or not? And that's not as easy to answer as we might think because you and I, have a a great ability, I have a great ability, I'm assuming you do too, to deceive ourselves and to rationalize. Jesus said you justify before men. You can rationalize. We're good at that. But, But how can you tell? Now, what you need to know about the Pharisees, why were they lovers of money? That seems kind of odd for the Pharisees, Jesus to put that blanket statement on, on this whole group of folk. Because of this, The Pharisees had a belief system, Judaism had a belief system, that if you had lots of wealth, that was a sign that God was okay with you. If you had lots of of material blessings, if you had lots of, of good times, if things were rolling well for you, then that was a sign that God approved you. You must be okay in his eyes. And so when things were going well for them financially, what are they thinking? They're thinking, God approves of me. I must be doing okay for God to be so kind to me. And also, if you got lots of wealth, then other people can see that you're doing pretty good before God. And so for a Pharisee to be in poverty, oh man, that's a bad scene because poverty is seen as a curse. It's a punishment for some sort of sin. Remember the, uh, the John where the Pharisees come to, or the disciples come to Jesus. I think it's John, John 10. Uh, and they say, this blind man, this blind beggar, did he sin or did his parents sin? Obviously, someone had to sin for this guy to be blind and begging. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not the issue. This was the, the mindset. This is where these guys needed, they needed to be wealthy. They needed to know. And so Jesus, to his disciples with these Pharisees, he's dropping, gives this parable, and starts in verse 19. And he's trying to address this idea of loving money. And how can you tell if you're loving money? And why stewardship? And so he says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so Jesus introduces the characters. You've got two characters right from the beginning. You've got to ask who these guys represent, right? You've got this rich guy, and you've got this poor guy. And, and, and the contrast is pretty stark. Jesus paints these guys really... This, this rich guy, he's, he, he, he's got purple. Now, purple's a royal color. Purple dye would come from marine snails. Very difficult to get. And so if you had royal purple clothing, it just cost you a lot of money. That's why it was reserved for the king's. And this, this fine linen, kind of like a silk, bleached, bright, bright white. So he had this white undergarment. And he had this deep purple robe. I mean, this guy had a fashion statement going on here. He was saying something. He was dressed to the nines. He looked fine. He looked really, really fine. 
And he lives in a gated community. Did you see this? And he, he, he feasts sumptuously. Now, the wealthy people back then would be lucky, to, other than the Caesars, would be lucky to get meat once a week. But this guy has got a banquet every single day. And then they contrast that with this poor guy. This poor guy, he, I mean, the rich guy is covered in opulence. The poor guy is covered with sores, right? The, the rich guy is eating sumptuously. The poor guy desires to eat the crumbs that fell underneath this guy's table. Now, six different commentators have all said this, so I'm, I'm going to agree with them, although I'm just taking their word. They said that back then, these guys didn't use utensils when they ate. They often ate with their, their fingers. And so what the wealthy would do, all six commentators agree, what the wealthy would do is when they were done, they would cut a piece of bread, they would use it to wipe their hands, and they would throw it underneath their table. And that's what Lazarus was wanting to eat. Then the servants would come by and clean up and, and throw out. The, 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 the rich guy and Lazarus. I'm going to say that the rich guy represents the Pharisees, the person who loves money, the rich guy. So you're still asking yourself, okay, how do I, how do I know if I love money? Verse 22, it says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, this is, this is interesting because right away the Pharisees would go, Wait a minute, wait a minute. This poor guy, this guy that God is obviously not pleased with, goes to Abraham's side? In Judaism, they believe that at the end times, way at the end, Abraham would host this huge banquet and all good Jews, really good Jews, would go to it. So obviously this poor man's not going to be, what is he doing at the banquet? Meanwhile, the, the guy with the purple, he's the guy, he's the poster boy for Pharisees. He's the guy they want to be like. He's the one that, that, oh man, he's stellar and he must be very, very, very righteous because God gives him so much stuff and he must be doing great. And Oh man, he's the one I want to be like. And when he dies, he's buried. In Judaism and in Rome, Roman, Roman world, a proper burial was so important. And he got it. Lazarus died and we don't even, was he scavenged by the dogs? Was he out in the pauper's field? We don't, we don't know. But then in verse 23, Jesus throws another twist in here. This was talking about the rich man. And he says, and in Hades, in hell, being in torment, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. And Lazarus at his side, or in his lap. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Can you imagine the, the Pharisees? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. The rich, wait a minute, you got it mixed up, Jesus. The rich man is supposed to be by Abraham. You got him in hell. How, that's, that's who I want to be like. What are you doing here? What's going on? And they, their, their minds have to be freaking out right now. And then, then you listen to the words here. It gets a little bit more interesting because the rich man hasn't learned anything. His humility has not grown one iota through his unforeseen circumstances that he finds himself in. He still refers to Abraham as my father. You know, he's Jewish. He's got Jewish blood. So, of course, Abraham is my father. Now, those of you guys who know your Bible, John 8, you remember this. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are saying, my father is Abraham. And what's Jesus say? <laughs> no, 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 no. See, if your father was Abraham, then you would do the things Abraham did. But you don't. Your father is the devil. 
Well, that went over real well, right? You can imagine that. Jesus is, is, is telling these Pharisee folk who are thinking because they got Jewish blood in them, they're automatically in. He's telling folk like us, just because you go to church and you think you're automatically in, or because you went to Christian school and you think you're automatically in, or what, you think you're automatically in. He says, no, nah, nah, that's not the way it works. It's not, that's not the way it works. Because you see, you can't love God and love money at the same time. You just can't do it. And so I said, that, that, that doesn't work that way. Also, the rich man, you notice this guy. He's got the, the gall to still think that Lazarus only exists to serve him. And notice he doesn't talk to Lazarus. He's still way above Lazarus. Even while he's in hell, the rich guy is just, he can't even talk to Lazarus. Father Abraham, <laughs> Lazarus, of course, exists for me. So when you have him serve me, come and help me out because I'm in agony in this flame. It's demanding. It's demanding. Also, do you notice this? That Lazarus has a name and the rich guy doesn't have a name. This is the only parable where somebody has a name. And this is intentional because... The name Lazarus is the, means God, God is my help. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word, the Hebrew name Eleazar. And he's talking to Pharisees, right? Who would have known that the most famous Eleazar in the whole Bible is Abraham's assistant. The one who lives with Abraham, the one that's close to Abraham, the one that's right there. And so he's, he's, but meanwhile, the rich guy, God doesn't even know his name. Didn't Jesus say, depart from me, I, I never knew you. He doesn't even know your, his name. Now, verse 25, it says, but Abraham said, child, you remember in your lifetime you received many good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. Almost sounds like salvation via socioeconomics, doesn't it? All rich people, you're out. Sorry, too bad for you. Poor people, okay, you get your due, you're in. That's what it seems to say, right? That's, if we follow this parable, that's not what he's referring to at all. The, the inference here is great to the rich man. When he said, Lazarus was at your gate. And he had nothing. Meanwhile, you had everything. He didn't have to have nothing. You could have protected and taken care of and met his needs. I'm not talking about fixing the whole world here. There's one, one guy you could have, but you, you chose to not. And you want to know if you are in love with money or not? It's not the size of your 401k. It's not the size of what's in your garage. It's not the size of your bank account. It's not the size of your net worth. Whether you love money or not deals truly with the size of your heart and generosity towards the poor. And Jesus, this, this man obviously wasn't there. He, 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 mis, he mistreated. He mistreated. He says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may, may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, this, this text does not primarily teach us about hell. It's what I thought one time. But it does say some things about hell. And the concept of hell being a potential real destination for eternity is what makes this such a controversial passage, parable. And it's what... Uh, frankly, causes some folk to say, I'm not interested in Christianity. Because the thought goes like this. If there's a loving God, I mean, pure love, pure love, God, and there's a hell that he sends people to, how can they, these two are antithetical? They, they can't work to either, either one is wrong or the other is wrong or, or the, neither one exists because you can't have them both. This is the thought. 
And this idea of a hell, if you truly sit down and think about it, it is a numbing doctrine. But let me just mention a couple of things here that you learn about hell. First of all, hell is a real conscious place, according to Jesus. A real conscious place of torment. Now, number two, you find Jesus, from what Jesus says here, that what you do down here determines where you go when you die. That's according to Jesus. And the third, you find that your, your sides are fixed. Now, you know that there's a doctrine in some churches that says when you die, you can go to a place that's kind of hellish, you know, and you pay your dues, and then after your dues are paid, then you can go over into heaven. And Abraham here, and the rest of Scripture, by the way, says that's, that's not true. Once you're there, you're fixed. You don't come back over. There, there's a gap, and you can't, there's no bridge across it. You can't come, come over. Once you're, you're there, you're there. Now, for those who struggle with the concept of hell, let me just throw, again, this is no whole message isn't about hell, but let me throw just a couple things that, might, that you can ponder on. They're not going to solve everything, but you can think about it. One is this. Uh, hell must exist to satisfy love. Do you know if there's no such thing as hell, then there can't be any such thing as love. And this is why, if there is a loving God, then he has to know everything and he has to care for these exploited people, these people who are innocent kids, innocent adults, that the wealthy or the powerful abuse or exploit or trample on and destroy their hearts, destroy their future, destroy their bodies, all for the sake of satisfying their creaturely comforts. I really don't care what happens to you just as long as I'm taken care of. If there was a loving God and he allowed that to go on, and then these people, after they die, they go to eternal bliss, he wouldn't be a very loving God, would he? Love requires justice. Uh, The second thing is is there must be a hell in order to live with a degree of sanity in this world. If somebody does something very hurtful to someone in your family, and you want to rise up, don't you? There there has to be, there's vengeance. If no one else is going to use justice here, I'm going to. This person looks like they got away with it. I'm going to take care of it. But biblically, when we understand that one day, everybody will stand before God, the righteous judge, who will judge for every word, every action. Every, they will be judged. Now, sometimes this idea of judgment is tough for us because judgment is abused in this world. The wealthy still seem to be able to get the best lawyers or find the loopholes or find their way out. You, you, you've got um, uh, mental illness thrown in there. No one really knows. And you've got a billion variables. And who can really be sure? And justice, at best, seems like a kangaroo court in this world. And at best... Often it is. But if there really was a judge who knew everything and who was fully compassionate and fully loved and yet fully just and, and would, would you could trust would make the right call, I think you and I would both say, yeah, we need something like that. There's a third reason why there has to be a hell, though, and that is because of choice. You know, if someone says, and someone says, will God send me to hell? Does your Bible say, I'm going to hell one day? Well, do you love God? And do you worship Him? And do you long to sing His praises? And are you you in submission to Him and care that, that He gets the glory and you don't? Do you live your life that way? And I'm assuming they would say, no. Well, then why do you want to go to heaven? Because according to Scripture, that's what heaven is. 
Uh, Richard Dawkins, I think it was his book, The God Delusion, he says this. He says, if there is a heaven, it would be hell for me. And you know what? That's right. Because why would anyone, if you've in your life decided, I am not interested in living my life for God, why would you want to spend eternity living for God? It's, it just makes no sense. That's why C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Because the folk don't want to go. And you notice in this text, the rich man never asked to get out. He doesn't say, please get me out of here. He doesn't like the torment, but he doesn't want to get out. That's not what what he's looking for. But he does have something else to say. Verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send, send Lazarus, command Lazarus again, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. The rich guy does not like being told no himself. He's going to push back. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Which they didn't, obviously, when Jesus rose from the dead and the Pharisees knew that he rose from the dead and they still paid guards to tell a lie that he he didn't rise from the dead. But keep in mind who Jesus is talking to here. This rich guy is in hell because you can't serve God and money and he chose to worship money. And it was demonstrated by his lack of concern for the poor. And so he's, he's in hell and because of, of that, Jesus is speaking to him here. And because of, of that, Christ is coming and letting him know that because you had so much that I gave you and you chose to not invest it in, in others, this is, is why you're here. You need to know this idea about taking care of the poor is not something that God stutters on. This is all over in, in, in the, their, their Bible. That's why he says, let them read Moses and the prophets. Just ne- next slide. These are just some of the verses. I'm serious, just some. There's a lot more we could put up of, of this are direct commands to take care of the poor. Now, if this guy is calling Abraham his father, and if this guy is Pharisee-like, and if this guy is is supposed to be righteous, then he knows the word. He knows these texts. He knows that his command to him, God's expectation, is that he take care of the poor, and he's blowing it off. He's taking the scripture, and he's blowing it off. He's saying, no, I'm not going on that road. That's not what I'm doing. And so he's, he's in hell. It's interesting when he says... Uh, They'll repent if someone comes back from the dead. You know, I've seen some supernatural, not a whole lot. I've seen a couple supernatural things in my days. One I saw, I don't have time to go into it, but it's a supernatural sort of thing, very obvious. And I was a youth pastor. And uh, when it was over, one of my, one of my kids it was just like, looking like he saw a ghost. He was right there, experienced the whole thing. And he's like, this is Pastor Mark. What is going on? And so I shared with him, blah, 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 blah. About a month later, this guy is in trouble with the law for doing something uh, we're not going to talk about in, in schools. Just a very bad situation. His life, never, he saw the supernatural. I know, he saw it. Didn't change anything. Meanwhile, you know of people, I know of people. We got, I was talking with uh, Bob Blakesley this, this week. He's a uh, congregant. Uh, several years ago, many years ago, Bob um, 
wondering about life, bored with life in some ways, salesman, businessman. He's in his hotel room, uh, picks up a Gideon's Bible. He'd always heard you should read in John. So he starts reading in John. By the time he gets to chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He knows it's true. He knows it's true. It wasn't a supernatural thing. It was the word of God. Faith based on the supernatural stuff is shallow and it's not going to make it. Faith based on the word of God is going to take us places. So, this idea... That, that your responsibility, my responsibility for the poor, it's, by the way, it's not just Old Testament, it is everywhere. So let me ask you, are you a lover of money? Is it, possible? Is it just a small possibility? Randy Elkhorn's got a great quote. I love Randy Elkhorn's quote. He says, Seeking fulfillment in money, land, houses, cars, clothes, boats, campers, hot tubs, world travel, and cruises has left us bound and gagged by materialism and like drug addicts. We pathetically think that our only hope lies in getting more of the same. Don't you love that? But Jesus says here, uh, Jesus says to his disciples in warning and to the Pharisees directly, your uh, earthly riches can result in eternal ruin because if you love money as demonstrated by your lack of concern for the poor... Jesus would say that there's no salvation outside of good stewardship. In Matthew 6, he says, Unless, if you don't, if you forgive people, my Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive, my Heavenly Father won't forgive you. Well, salvation based on works? No, no, no. But he knows this if you've truly experienced the forgiveness of Christ, you will forgive. If you've truly experienced the riches of Christ, you know what? towards us when we were needy, we will, we will be there. That's why James says this, James 2. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. First John 3. This is, this, is a great, this is amazing. If anyone has material possessions, by the way, according to the world standards, every person in here is rich. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, then how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Jesus is saying, on one level, we're not saved by works, we're not saved by, we're not saved by grace through faith alone. But a faith that doesn't produce works, it's really not there in the first place. Let me ask you, do you love money? You know, is it uh, Craig Blomberg, in one of his books, he says this, he's talking about this subject. He's talking about a husband and wife team called Empty Tomb Incorporated. They're out of Champaign, Illinois. They do research on Christians, uh, Americans in their giving patterns, Christians in their giving patterns and global needs. It says, John and Sylvia Ronsval, that's from Empty Tomb Incorporated, have estimated that 30 to $50 billion a year could meet the most essential human needs around the world. 
projects for clean water and sanitation, prenatal and infant maternal care, basic education, immunizations, and long-term development efforts are among the activities that could help overcome the poverty conditions that now kill and maim so many children and adults. The Rosenvelds go on to write, that figure of 30 to 50 billion may sound like anything but good news. God may be generous, you may agree, but has he been that generous? Consider this. If church members in the United States would increase their giving to 10% of their income, this, listen, this is amazing, there would be more than $65 billion per year available for overseas ministries and $15 billion a year for meeting the needs of our neighbors across town, even while maintaining current congregational programs, including building projects. There'd be an extra $80 billion that we could meet the, the needs for. Now, you might be thinking, well, I can't control everybody's giving. World, save the world, world peace. You know, let's take care of world poverty. Yeah, I'm not bono. What are you thinking? I'm not going to be able to pull that off. And so I'm just me. And this parable is not about world poverty. This parable is about Lazarus, the guy at the rich guy's gate, the, the needs he knows of. Now, let me, this church, incredible. We've got several issues here that, that, that we, we nail it on. We've got a benevolence uh, uh, team here, Benevolence Fund. You may not even be aware of this. You can check it on, on your offering envelope. But John Maley and his team, he's been running it for many years. They're very wise. They're very careful, but they're very sensitive. And that fund goes to helping people. We're not going to advertise the needs, but people who have trouble with their car, maybe they're out of work, they're struggling to make ends meet, there's medical bills, they, 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 they lost their job and now they can't uh, pay their utilities. They need food. That fund has been supplying that. That's one way. We have our food pantry that reaches many people in the area who can't eat. We have our upper room where they provide meals and they provide blankets in the wintertime. Uh, we, as a church, uh, support the mission. We support the cr- Crisis Pregnancy Care Center. People who are really struggling, they're really in a tough spot. We, as a church, support that, which is, which is amazing. Many, this is, many people in the congregation here support through Remember New. This is amazing to me. We've got four homes, two in East Asia and two in Africa, that are kind of like orphanages. Remember New has gone through and they've... they've, they've Pick some students that are high-risk kids for sex trafficking. And they've invited them, with parental approval, into these homes. And they, they take care of them. And they protect them. And they watch them. And they give them education. Uh, many people in the congregation support kids through Compassion International. On and on. The issue is, let me ask you this. What are you doing? Are you involved in some way? It doesn't have to be through the church. But what are you doing personally? Because the first sign of are you a lover of money is how, you're, how you respond in generosity to the poor. Now, you need to know, Jesus here is not saying this because he's mean. He's not saying this because he wants your money. Jesus doesn't want anyone's money. He doesn't, he's never asked for your money. If he was, he's God, if he wanted it, he'd take it, right? That's not, Jesus does not care for your money. But he knows these Pharisee folk are, are, are worshiping they would never say it this way. They go to church. They, they have the Old Testament. They know it. But in their heart, they're worshiping money. And he knows you can't worship God and money. You can't do it. And so if you've chosen money, all he's saying is your earthly riches can result in eternal poverty. Now, the amazing thing about this story is, is all of us, at one time or another, were worshiping something other than Christ whether it's pleasure or or drugs or sex or materialism or whatever, self, something. Every one of those 
would damn us to hell. But the really cool thing, and I wonder if Jesus thought about this when he was telling the story, that one day he would endure hell for the rich man. Rich man's not named in the story. You know what? Maybe he's got your name. Maybe he's got my name. Jesus would take that hell himself so that you don't have to go there. I don't. So the good news, the good news of this whole, whole deal, and the reason why he's telling this to these guys is you don't have to end up there. You don't have to worship something that is really nothing but chains to slow you down in this life, things that won't give you any freedom. You don't have to be there. You can find your freedom in Christ. Let me ask you again. Are you a lover of money? Have you found freedom in Christ?